Thank you, Ryan and worship team. Um, Connor, I'm going to ask you to throw up that lake, lake slide. So two quick things um, from me. One is um, young adults, we've got um, a growing coagulation of them, and I love it. I get the opportunity to, to um, be with them. Uh, or they tolerate me, maybe that's a better way of saying it. Um, but we're having a lake day for anybody, um, if you're kind of young, tw- 20s to young 30s-ish, that's kind of where we are, we're mostly uh, in the 20s. If you're just back from college, we'd love for you to come join us here. That's actually a picture of me, I just wanted to say that. <laughs> no, that might be Mark, I don't know who that is, but it's not me. <laughs> Sadly, Buddy cannot get up on a wakeboard. He is not good enough uh, to do it. But that's on Memorial Day Monday. Most people are off. So if you're a young adult, if you're in that category, find me afterward. love to tell you more. The other thing that has a heads up for you if you're a young adult, um, uh, we, lo- we have been loving our Sunday nights, um, doing a study through 2 Timothy, and tonight is the final one of those. Even if you haven't been here at all, even the returning college students, love for you to join us. Tonight can stand on its own. But I want to tell you this one reality. I'm not dumb. The Mavs play tonight, so we're going to meet earlier at 5 o'clock at the ABC offices. So that's you. Again, you can talk to me afterward, but 5 o'clock at the ABC offices. If you don't know where they are, uh, you can find that address online. So now that I've ruined our mood with me and the uh, wakeboarding, let's pray again. Father, uh, grateful that... um, We've been able to sing your praises, and when we sing uh, about you and truly who you are and who you revealed yourself to be, both in history and in your word, not one of those words fall flat. When we talk about your amazing grace, when we talk about because he lives, I know that I can face tomorrow, that life is worth living just because Jesus lives, that you meet us in our brokenness. In fact, you dwell in a high and holy place, Isaiah says, especially with a broken and contrite in heart. And I know even as we go into a passage today where we'll talk about brokenness, we talk about just being um, chiseled away on, as we talk about fire and just stress and suffering. Father, I pray for those who've come in this morning And they barely made it here. They might not have wanted to come here. But thank you, Father, you have an appointment with each of us this morning in your word. I pray that we would meet you there. You're already there waiting for us. Pray that you might find us with open minds, open hearts, our attention given to you so that our affections might follow and that Christ might be glorified. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, um, yesterday, Day and I were at... Um, David and Pam Haddon's house for um, something that many of you, if your parents have done, um, it's the one-year-old birthday of their grandson, um, Nolan. Uh, J.D. Thomas, who was our student director here for years, married their daughter, uh, Dorsey. And it was, I love these because it's when you smash the cake. And, um, you know, it couldn't have been a more uh, perfect day. Uh, they're about a, the, the most Instagrammable family as you can get. They are all beautiful, JD included, okay? And little Nolan, he's like got a perfect shaped head, and I mean, he's just 
the right disposition, all that, right? And for a while, I was like, this is going to be too perfect. The cake is not going to get touched. And then finally, he went after it. And I was like, yes. The only problem is we didn't get to eat the cake. So what, what happened with that? day? <laughs> no. Um, but I say all that because in the moment, I was even hit with knowing what we were going to talk about today. All the dreams, all the hopes of a young parent with their child as he's one year old and, and you just... You know, in the moment, it's fun, and it's family, and it's a rich time, but probably leading up to it and probably hit with it later as a parent, you're like, what are those things I really hope for Nolan? And, you, you know, us old folks are like, well, it all flies by. You know, they're pretty soon they're, they're big and smelly, and then they leave you, right? But, but, but of those dreams, those hopes, those purposes, those plans as a parent, like you just, you just long to see who they'll become and you know that God has you as part of that, but also you know that I totally don't know what I'm doing and I, it's totally out of my hands, all that. And so you just, what kind of person, what kind of man did they hope for him to become? And then what will, what will little Nolan need to receive, need to learn, and need to go through to become that kind of man? As we turn to 1 Peter 4, you can meet me there. Uh, turn to 1 Peter 4. Really, the whole book of 1 Peter, the letter of Peter to the resident aliens, those who are believers who are scattered abroad, it's really, in one sense, you could, you could say he's trying to write a letter of encouragement where maybe an underlying question would be, what kind of person is God desiring for you and me to become or for them to become? Not in spite of circumstances, but in and through those circumstances. What, who is he hoping for you to become? Who is he intending for you and me to become? It's a kind of person. And I would say that we've called this series Surprising Not Surprised. As we um, talk about here often, because he's... Um, redeemed us in Christ, being in Christ, that's our identity. We are his ambassadors. First Peter is all about that. Here's how to be an ambassador in a place that's not your home. In fact, it's a place that's hostile, and there will, just like our world today, it's hostile, and there's a lot of hurt going on. And how do you and I navigate that? What in the world would God do, and who is he trying to forge us to become in that kind of place? We call it surprising, not surprising. He would like for us as his ambassadors in the world where he's located you and me to be surprising to the world around us. We'll talk about that again. And to be not surprised. And this is the key passage today where the phrase is, do not be surprised. Don't be capsized. Don't be caught off guard. Don't go, what in the world? I wasn't expecting this. And part of why he wants to say that is because God knows the person he wants you and me to become. And he also knows what we need to receive, what we need to learn, and what we need to go through in order to become that kind of person that God purposes you and me to be. I would put it with these two words. I think regardless of personality, there's all that special texturing that he's going to have for each person. But I think as, as his followers, he desires us to become radiant and resilient. Radiant and resilient. Today, particularly, 
the resiliency part comes in. Because if I'm going to become a person who endures, if I'm going to become a person who is faithful in my commitment to the Lord, if I'm going to become a person who isn't knocked off kilter by everything that doesn't fit my categories, God's going to have to help me receive some things. He has some things for me to receive. He has some things for me to learn. And he's going to have some things that he intends and purposes for me to go through, especially suffering, especially hurt, hostility. And so how is God for you? I want you to have this question in mind, those two questions. Who's God wanting you to become, no matter where you are? And how is God forging you to become that kind of person? Okay, Just to keep you alert, would you stand? We're going to read the passage, and let's just read it out loud together off the slides, all right? 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. Um, I'll be loud, but you join in with me, okay? Here we go. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. So the, God knows the kind of man or woman, as a Christ follower, He intends for you to become. And He knows what you need and I need to receive from Him to learn and to go through in order to become that kind of person. The Apostle Paul uses these phrases, I am confident that He who began a good work in you will continue it until the day of Christ Jesus. He also talks about that God is about conforming us to the image of His Son. That's what He's after in all of us, to make us like His Son. But what does that making look like? And I'm using the word forge. You could use the word furnace. You could use smelting, because He talks about the fiery ordeal that has come upon you for your testing. That lets us know that this isn't happenstance, that God didn't you know, leave the, forget to mine the store and he left and he came back and found out your world is in chaos. But he as a faithful creator, he is a faithful sustainer, he is the good shepherd, he is as the vine dresser, knows what he's doing in order to bring you and me, conform us to become like Christ. Even in our day so that Christ might be radiant through us, and that he might be the only explanation that I have any resiliency at all, 
that I'm not completely knocked over, that I'm not completely capsized. And Peter is writing as one who knows what it's like to have your radiance dulled and to have your resiliency tested and fail. Loudmouth Peter, everybody else will bail on you, Lord, but not me. And then with a little girl, he can't even say that he aligns with Christ, that he knows Christ. Peter understands all of us will have moments where we have failure of nerve and failure of heart. God knows this, and he knows what he wants to do in order to make us more like his son, that he's going to tailor-make mercies that are new every morning for you, wherever you are and whatever's going uh, on, that his grace will be there to instruct you along the way, but also that he will either allow or he will orchestrate things that will smelt off what doesn't need to be there, that will reveal where our heart is not really aligned with him and needs realignment. He's gracious enough to do that. The question is, Will we, how will we respond when that's happening? And what do we need to receive from him and learn from him about suffering so that we have a, a long view perspective so that we don't cave quite as much? Or when we do, we know we come back to him. And so this is all about suffering. And if you're like, dude, this is like the sixth message or something on suffering, it's Peter's fault. Okay, that's, that's what he's writing about. But you know what? He's writing about that. Why? Because of the first part we're going to go through. He's going to give us the realities of suffering. And then he's going to talk about responses to suffering as it comes our way. So let's look at the realities of suffering first. Next slide. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial or fiery ordeal among you. Literally, if you just read it in order, do not be surprised at the among you burning. Now, this is figurative. Think in your mind. Um, gold being put through a refining fire through a smelting process so that the dross, the, the bad stuff that's not pure gold, is melted off. It's a process to reveal the true value that's there and to also then let that, because the dross is gone, now it is more pure, beautiful, and valuable. He says this burning, it's, it's a figurative thing, but also very soon they'll actually be experiencing literal fire. Because this is in the time of Nero, and at some point Nero kind of, as I read about him a little bit, he kind of, um, like some of us, he just would get bored with stuff. He's like, I need to tear some stuff down and build some new stuff because I want people to think, you know, look at me, I'm always renovating or whatever. And um, evidently, he started fires just to burn some stuff down and then turn the blame to Christians. And so then all of a sudden, Christians who were just kind of thought of as odd but kind of tolerated, now they become ostracized pointed at, targeted, and then it eventually becomes official persecution, government-sanctioned. Nero himself, it said, that he would have these um, evening parties, and he would basically, sorry for the grotesqueness, basically skewer Christians on stakes of some kind as people were coming to his garden party, and he would light them on fire so that they could see their way to the party. 
that's what's coming in a year or two or within a decade for these people. So there are going to be literal fires for naming the name of Christ that they will go through. And he would say, even those do not be surprised at the among you burning. Well, I'm going to quote three people. One you might say is um, a pastor, um, theo- theologian. One you might say is sort of a, 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 write, a brilliant writer and theologian. And the others are just pop culture theologians. R.E.M. Everybody hurts sometimes. It's actually true. Everybody hurts sometimes. Now, we're going to talk about this is a little bit more specific type of suffering, but it doesn't exclude any kind of suffering. If, if you've just hit a bad patch in your life, it seems like nothing is coming through for you. you you've, got some, you've got some relational trouble. You've got some job frustration you're, you know, like us, your, your whole bathroom is like leaking everywhere and you got a hole in your ceiling, whatever. Like, that's suffering. In fact, in chapter 1, we'll look at it in a moment, he says various kinds of suffering, or James talks about it, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, multicolored trials. Even the non-believer would sing with R.E.M. or cry as R.E.M. sings it, everybody hurts. Sometimes, And what Peter's saying is, let's not miss what God might be doing or might be able to do with us in the midst of that hurt. Second one, let's ratchet up a little bit our thinking caps. C.S. Lewis. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. Again, as we're starting with, what kind of person is God wanting you to become? No matter where you are in the journey, And how is he going to forge that happening? It's going to include pain. It's going to include suffering. It's going to include whether it's inconvenience or incapacitation. I can't, I'm not going to try to say ostracized. Yeah, exactly. Being ostracized, isolated, insulted, whatever it is, anywhere on that spectrum, Where or how would God use that to continue to bring about you becoming the person that he intends for you to become, radiant and resilient? The last one, Tim Keller, he wrote a book called Walking with God uh, Through Suffering. It says, believers understand many doctrinal truths in their mind or in the mind, but those truths seldom make the journey down into the heart except through disappointment, failure, and loss. And I could bring up person after person, because I know some of your stories. And you could talk about an excruciating moment in your life when you just thought every slat is kicked out, everything that I thought would be secure, you know, securing in my life or significant or important or valuable has been taken away. You've either experienced a loss in the family, you've experienced a, a, a complete upheaval of how people regard you and your reputation. Maybe you've been really hurt, betrayed by a friend or a spouse. But I could bring you up, and many of you would say, as I look back on it, I can now. I couldn't at the moment. Sometimes you can, but at the moment I couldn't see it. But now I see God's hand 
even or especially in the midst of when I was completely undone, when I was reduced to dust, when I prayed about Isaiah saying he, he's high, he, God dwells in a high and holy place, especially with the broken and contrite heart. The word contrite there is almost like smashing something to just dust particles. He says that's where God loves to dwell. God loves to dwell there because he knows you might not want it. You may not be able to re- receive the good part of it now, but I know what I'm doing to bring you to become the person I want you to become. So choose your favorite, R.E.M., C.S. Lewis, or Tim Keller. But the reality is we all suffer. Suffering is unavoidable. But I also want us to see in the passage, Peter wants us to see it's, it's necessary. And it comes to those who faithfully follow Jesus. Why does it come to those who faithfully follow Jesus? Well, because when we do so, when we're living out our relationship with him and our faith in him, it's going to stick out and it's going to be surprising. It's going to catch the world by surprise and irritate them. Next slide. This is a couple of weeks ago in 1 Peter 4.4. Again, the verse 1 in this chapter was, Therefore arm yourselves for this purpose, for suffering. Like have the mindset of Christ, basically, for suffering. And then he says, in all this, they are surprised. Your old running buddies, your old frat party lifestyle friends, they are surprised. Why? That you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. And what's their response? They malign you. Part of suffering in the Christian life is that because we are following him, Our values and the world's values will collide and they will repel one another. And when that's called for, it's a test of nerve and it's a test of heart for us. And it can be a pretty intense feel like fire, if you will. But it is an intense process or test where where our real allegiance is will stick out. And the world says, no, when you live that way, when you hold those values and you actually live them, that rubs me the wrong way. Mason King, who's an elder at the Village Church, um, he says this, this text is about being thought less of, being treated less than. Pause right there. I want you to hear that. To name the name of Christ and to walk with him, it will affect how you do your business, whether you smudge numbers, whether you compromise the truth. It will affect how you and your family navigate this culture and what will become most important to you, showing in your time, in your money, all of that. And you will be thought less of or you will be treated less than. And that's real suffering. He says it's about that and being perceived as an obstacle or an enemy because our faith causes us to live differently than the world. Peter invites these followers of Christ to endure hardship with hope because Christ suffered hardship to become our hope. Next slide. This passage assumes that the life of a Christian makes others uncomfortable because of its beauty, simplicity, and its depth of peace. Does that mark your life? A life of beauty? You see the radiance there of beauty, simplicity, and a depth of peace that the world, this, our, our anxiety-ridden world does not operate by or have. He says, your lack of concern of being accepted by the world 
is both an indictment and a threat to those whose life is built on comparison and comfort. Just let that phrase, I mean, that's why I quoted it. I, I was like, that's a, a crystal clear way of seeing how our world operates, that we are driven to build our lives by comparison and comfort. See also, every time you go to a social media feed and you feel worse about yourself, So suffering happens to all of us, but suffering is necessary because it does two things. Next slide. Suffering reveals and it refines your loyalties, my loyalties, and your hope. He says this is to test you. Okay, It's to reveal. If number one, in two ways. In number one, it reveals where your true trust is, where your, your most valuable hope is. When I hit a trial, it will show me where I have a competing allegiance, where there's a rival to his lordship in my life. You see, unless you go through trials, you really don't know who or what you trust in. It's just words. But when it gets tested, then all those competing allegiances, all of a sudden, one rises to the top. One rises to the decision. One rises to the response in a situation. It's only when we are in the fire, when we're in that place of either obeying God or causing us to lose our job, when we're going to be trusting God or just live disoriented and anxious, you're in the fire when obedience to God will cost you something very dear to you. And so it reveals but it also refines our loyalty because it destroys, just like the smelting of dross off gold, it destroys what's unimportant. It melts it away. And only through the fiery ordeal can that happen. God wants to reveal His Son in you. If we are in Christ, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He is our living hope. He is our identity. But where we've not been practicing or exercising that, it needs to be melted off. And we need to be shown where those things that are false trust to us. Uh, Mark, excuse me, Luke 14, 26 and 27. If anyone comes to me, the next slide, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. I always forget this because I'm like, are his cousins in there? Uh, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross, that would be, I am submitted to the Lord's will no matter the suffering. And come after me, he cannot be my disciple. The question there is, is he your supreme love relationship? It'll get tested when there's a cross moment when there's a submission to his will and not the way of the crowd moment, it will get tested. It will get revealed. Does he get your unrivaled loyalty? That's what 26 is talking about. He's, doesn't, he's not telling you hate mom and dad. He's saying in comparison, every other relationship should, should be seen as not as important as your relationship with Jesus Christ. That he should be the supreme relationship in your and my life. And that my joyous whole life response to him will declare that in how I live. 
And so it reveals and refines. It also reveals uh, rivals in Jeremiah. Next slide. In Jeremiah, we went through a good portion of Jeremiah in the fall. Jeremiah, the prophet, if you don't know, in 586 B.C., uh, after years and years of preaching and nobody responding, he's like, listen, God's saying we got, we got time, but we need to repent. We need to return to the Lord. Otherwise, the Babylonians are coming. He sat on the ash heap and said, well, but in the beginning of Jeremiah's early on, this is God through Jeremiah saying, I'm trying to bring you to a point of testing where you understand there is a rival to me in your hearts and the way you live. They built idols out of wood, metal, okay? Notice the satirical nature of this. It says, they say to the wood, to wood, you're my father, and to stone, you gave me birth. Next one. Next slide, there we go. They have turned their backs to me and not their faces, yet when they're in trouble... They say, come and save us. Last slide. Where then are the gods you made for yourselves? Let them come if they can save you when you're in trouble. For you have as many gods as you have towns, O Judah. That's not just for the people of Judah. That is for us. We construct that which we say. Now, this is where real life will be secured and found and experienced and enjoyed. And we build our life on it. And if it's anything other than the living God, it will, it will crumble or it will crush you. And God says, hey, I thought, you know, you spent all this time, this money, this energy put forth, constructed it. And then when it started to totter, ironically, you had to nail another board to hold it up. But why, why isn't that God delivering you? Because it's no God at all. Isaiah and Jeremiah, boy, they get, they get saucy, salty, and sassy. I'm going to use all those S's. With the people of God, but we are those people. We build our lives on constructs that cannot hold. And God loves us enough to bring fire to reveal that, and then to possibly, if we stay in the fire, to melt it off so that we might become more the people that he is wanting us and calling us to be. They're necessary. 1 Peter 1, 6, next slide. In this, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Why? Next slide. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that's the picture, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, speaking of Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that it's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Even though it seems like he's not around, I'm going to take him at his word. I'm going to trust him. He loved me, and so I respond in love and trust to him, even when it hurts, and it will. Well, those are the realities. The next, the responses. Back to verse 12. First response, I would say, is expect the forge. Do not be surprised. Expect the forge. God has you. He's, he's constructed that forge. 
He's allowed that fire, whatever it is, because he knows what he wants to do. He knows what he wants to reveal. He knows what he wants to refine. Do not be surprised. Next slide. There's a few other pictures of this. We're looking at the refiner of ore. But there are three other pictures besides that in the New Testament. You see of a coach and an athlete that God would train us, that he would bring us through the paces so that he would build endurance in us to run the race, which is not a sprint, it's a marathon. The parent's child in Hebrews 12, which is referring also to the Proverbs, he says, hey, when you're going through discipline, don't think God is absent or out to get you or is, you know, just for ugly reasons doing this. If you're being disciplined, know it's because he's a loving father who wouldn't just let you get whatever you want whenever you want, who actually allows you to go through some things that pain you. And the writer of the Hebrews says, all discipline for the moment seems sorrowful, but the end result is joy. So those are other pictures. The last one, the vine dresser and the vine from John 15. Um, he talks about two things he does. That the, uh, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. So we've got to stay connected to him. Otherwise, our lives will not bear the fruit that God intends. We won't become the fruitful people God wants us to be. But Jesus says, my father's the vine dresser. And there are actually two things he does. Most of us are familiar that he prunes us, meaning he cuts back so that more new growth can come. But another one, um, another picture in there, the viticulturalist, that's the fancy word for vine grower guy is he actually, some of the vines would get down to the ground and get dirty, and he lifts them off, he cleans them, and he retrellises them so they might produce fruit. Pruning sounds uh, awful, cutting, pain, and it is, but I want you to hear he does both. That he trellises you so that you and I might not be dirty, but we might be lifted up and fruitful all the more. So don't be surprised. Why? Because the refiner of ore, the coach, the parent, and the vine dresser all know what they, that, that is, it can be brought out of you, can, you can grow into and become. So whenever suffering hits, uh, hits us and we wince, which we all will, remember who is the one with the, at the forge? Who's the one training you? Who's the one disciplining you like a loving father who is the vine dresser lifting you up and pruning you because he knows what he wants you to become the other two responses verse 13 says not only do not be surprised but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation there's actually kind of four bubbling up of rejoice, joy, exulting. He's saying, I know it hurts, but if you can live not for in the painful moment only, but if you can live with the long view in mind of not only what God wants you to become, but who you will be and how you and I will get to share with Christ in his glory. He says the bubbling up can be a continual rejoicing. So when Paul in Philippians says rejoice again, you know, rejoice always, again I say rejoice, he's writing it from a prison cell, a place of suffering, a place of isolation, a place of punishment that he may or may not have deserved, most likely not. 
And yet he can say rejoice always, even from that spot, because of the glory that we will share with Christ. This is the thing that Peter in his own life rebuked Jesus when he said, now I've got, yes, you're right, I'm the Christ, now I've got to go suffer and die. And Peter says, no way. What Peter didn't understand, Jesus said it must happen. It must happen. What must happen? Suffering before glory. What I would say in this passage, it's not just, well, someday your suffering will be replaced by glory. I believe Peter is talking about that suffering will be transformed into glory. That the very process that God takes you through and he demonstrates his grace, his kindness, his mercy, his intentionality with you is a glorious and beautiful thing that displays just what kind of God he is. In Acts 5, they were uh, having another time of getting Peter and John had been arrested. Uh, they kept getting intimidated and um, they'd gotten kind of roughed up and hassled and threatened. And then they come back and they celebrate. Everybody celebrates. It says they went on their way. The next slide. They went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And then they were supposed to just keep their mouths shut. It says, and every day, because they'd been rejoicing, it fueled them. Every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Malcolm Muggeridge, a British journalist, he said this, because in our world, remember they said, comparison, um, Mason King said, comparison and comfort drive us. You could also put pleasure in there. Where's the good life really found? Um, there's, there's several slides here. This, this man's a British journalist. I want you to hear as he's kind of getting toward the end of his life, as he looked back and he catalogs the high points, the low points, what was pleasurable, what was painful. Listen to this man's testimony. Contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful. I now look back upon them with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I've learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness, whether pursued or attained. In other words, I say this, if it were possible to eliminate affliction, from our earthly existence by means of some drug or other medical mumbo-jumbo, the result would not be able to not be to make life delectable, but to make it too banal and trivial to be endurable. This, of course, is what the cross signifies, and it is the cross more than anything else that has called me inexorably to Christ. Inexorably, think Star Wars tractor beam, you can't, it's going to take you. And the cross and its suffering takes us to the one who suffered there. And in the gruesomeness, there's beauty. And in the hatred put toward him, there's love displayed. In the hostility, there's grace and mercy. And in the death that he died that should have been mine, there is life. So we can keep on rejoicing. The last one, verse 19. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. We're to keep on rejoicing and we're to keep on entrusting. This is actually a banking term where you would go and entrust or you would make a deposit of some treasure of yours, deposit of your money 
you would deposit in safe and trustworthy hands. Notice, he says, entrust their souls, or some of you say, entrusting themselves. That's what we're to entrust. We're to deposit in God's hands, and we're going to talk about this more in a couple of weeks, but in God's capable and caring hands in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain, in the midst of being insulted and humiliated and rejected. I am to keep entrusting each new moment of that, each new wanting to wiggle out, wanting to jump out of the forge or furnace. I'm to keep on entrusting. I am to deposit, you are to deposit yourself into the Creator's hands. Warren Wiersbe says this on the magic next slide. God has never promised that we would miss the storm, but He has promised that we would make the harbor. When God puts His own people into the furnace, He keeps His eye on the clock and His hand on the thermostat. He knows how long and how much. So we can keep on entrusting ourselves into His hands. There are two responses here. The first one was, do not be surprised, but the two other responses on the last slide there. Because, you know, when you're put in, they have to get it to the right degrees. Like you're saying, the thermostat. They have to get the forge to the right, uh, the fire to the right degrees. And really, they're degrees of suffering. He says, hey, if you're suffering because you're a murderer or a thief, or we don't have time to go into it, but if you're a meddler in other people's stuff and business, that was also in that category. He says, then you should suffer. But if you suffer because you align with Christ, that's what we're talking about. To the degree that you suffer because you align with Christ, keep on rejoicing. To the degree that you endure, you're able to endure, that's showing that you are entrusting yourself into his hand. In 1 Peter, uh, the next slide, we saw Jesus as our example in that. It says, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The context there was, while he's being reviled, he didn't revile in return. They were breathing threats, and he didn't breathe anything back to them. But he just kept entrusting himself to the him who judges justly. And then Jesus himself on the cross in Luke 23, 46. On the next slide, he says this, and I want to point this out because it's the same word in our passage. And Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. He refused to distrust the Father. He kept entrusting himself, and even his, before his last breath, committed himself again in that painful moment into the Father's hands. And because of that, and only because of that, you and I can be brought into relationship with that same God. And having been secured in relationship with him, we can now trust him as he takes us through what we need to go through, as he teaches us what we need to learn, and as he helps us become more receptive to the God who is at work to bring us to become more like his son. Because we realize as we cry out to him, like he says in Isaiah 43, we're not just the ones drowning or we're not just the ones in the fire. He says, I will be with you. I will be with you. I'm going to have the worship team come back up. Daniel 3 is our, our personal example. It's always important to put Jesus up. He's not just an example, but he's the one who saved us so that we might become those that God calls us to be and wants us to be. But old Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
You can throw these slides up too. There's just two of them. From Daniel 3, they're threatened. They're supposed to bow down to the idols of their day. It's now a rivalry moment. And Nebuchadnezzar says, look, we're going to toss you in the fire. I'm going to crank it up seven times. In fact, his own, people, his own men that take him there are going to burn. They're going to die. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they reply to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of the blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You can almost hear the rejoicing, the entrusting in that moment. As we sing this song, I want you to hear this. Peter is not encouraging us to just grit our teeth and go, I'm going to show that I can be resilient. It's actually to say, no, I'm going to put my life in your hands, God. And that's, that's the only source of rest or resiliency or security. And you don't promise that you'll take me out of every fire. In fact, you promise there'll be fires. But rejoicing is the song of those who exercise our living hope that we've been given in Jesus and who deposit ourselves in the Creator's care. Rejoicing in the midst of suffering is not a denial of pain or the reality of suffering, but it is a declaration. He is my God, and I will stay in this fire. Why? Because He is with me. Would you stand? We're going to declare that. Trust, and then I'll have a benediction for us at the end.
I know myself over the last few years, man, I just hit some rough, rough patches. And um, I can tell you that the Lord is faithful. What he gives us most of all is not necessarily a different circumstance, but he reminds us that he's with us in the middle of it. Isaiah 43, I heard this read by a woman who was about three weeks from her certain death. So she could speak with authority of God's presence with her. She said, when, uh, Isaiah says, and the Lord says through him, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I want you to know he's with us. And as we open with, Peter was writing these things to encourage us to endure hardship with hope. And our hope is a perspective. It's the long view. It's a biblically informed view of, yeah, the reality is it's hard and suffering will happen. It's also necessary, but also the long view that God knows what he's doing and what he wants us each to become, but he's also with us. First Peter 1 as our benediction. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I pray that this week you would know that he's with you, you're not alone, but also that you're not alone because of those who are around you right now. And if you're in a place where you're in the fire, you're in a place where you're overwhelmed, know that we want to be with you but know especially that he is with you. And may it not be a living hope that we only know, but may it be a hope that we live by in trusting ourselves and rejoicing each day no matter what comes so he'd be glorified. Have a great week.